0: This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now.
1: Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you, who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase Mobile App is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. Member, FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan, Chase & Co. Pushkin
2: This is Talk Easy. I'm Sam Fergoso. Welcome to the show. i am joined by actor Eddie Redmayne. Redmayne came to prominence in the early 2010s, where he starred in a string of films like My Week with Marilyn, Les Mis, and The Theory of Everything, for which he won an Oscar for Best Actor in a Leading Role. In the years since, he found success in the Fantastic Beast franchise. But regardless of size or scope of the project, his work is defined by transformation, a dogged commitment to shapeshifting in which he both physically and mentally embodies each character. Whether it's Stephen Hawking, civil rights activist Tom Hayden in The Trial of the Chicago 7, or a serial killer Charlie Cullen in his latest film, The Good Nurse. For those unfamiliar, Cullen received 11 consecutive life sentences in 2006. After pleading guilty to 22 murders in New Jersey and then another seven in Pennsylvania. He did this by administering lethal doses of medications to patients under his care. The film, directed by Tobias Lindholm, picks up toward the end of Colin's killing spree, as he befriends a compassionate colleague in Amy Loughran, played by Jessica Chastain. The two nurses became fast friends working night shifts at the ICU. But after a series of mysterious patient deaths, Amy, along with the police, suspect foul play. Here's a clip from the trailer.
0: So, oh, how are the girls? Oh, they're really good, but I'm
2: working a lot. You still owe me for last Friday, but it can wait, really. Oh No, I'm sorry. sorry. No, no, no. Nurse 50. Sorry about that. Thank you. Bye, mom. Love you guys.
1: Bye-bye. Nurse Loughran. This is Officer Braun.
3: Do you remember Anna Martinez?
1: There you go. Yeah. Her it was sudden.
3: Mind taking a
0: look at this?
1: Huh. The insulin in her system, it's a double medication error, which is really rare.
0: We understand that you work with a Charlie Cullen. Could he be involved in this?
1: She's their lovebirds. I cannot get over how cute your little Vanessa is. Who's Vanessa? Oh, my God. There's insulin in her system. Go oh, number one, three,
2: That was a clip from The Good Nurse, playing now in select theaters across the country. The film will also be available to stream on Netflix starting October 26. Now, in the last decade, there's been a kind of morbid fascination with serial killers on screen, from Dexter to Barry to Dahmer. But The Good Nurse, to its credit, bucks the trend of either glorifying or satirizing monstrous behavior. And that's really in large part due to Redmayne's commanding performance, which captures all sides of Charlie Collin. His specter-like presence around the hospital, his genuine kindness toward Amy and her children, and finally, his unnerving ability to disassociate while committing these heinous crimes. And so, this week, I wanted to ask Eddie about that difficult balancing act and how he's gone about doing this work for the last 15 years. We also discuss his first role at the age of 12 in Oliver, lessons learned from actor Mark Rylance, his early years as a struggling actor in Los Angeles, and much, much more. But before we jump in, I just wanna thank everyone for uh, the nice messages we've been receiving all week. Last Sunday with Corey Bush marked episode 300 of this podcast. That was, I admit, a stat I was unfamiliar with until someone pointed it out to me. I think, you know, when you make 52 episodes of a show each year, sometimes those markers get lost in the shuffle. So I just want to thank everyone that has been with us. Whether you've been here since 2016 or you found the show today, I am grateful for you. If you want us to continue making the work we do every Sunday, and I know I've said this before, but the best thing you can do is share Talk Easy with a friend. If you're a little bit tired of your friends and don't want to text them, I understand. Just giving us five stars on Spotify, Apple, wherever you listen, is another great way for new listeners to find the show. And so with that, here's to you, wherever you are, whoever you are, for showing up to Talk Easy time and time again. Here's to 300 more of these conversations like the one I had with Eddie Redman. much love Eddie Redman. hi how are you feeling
3: I um I'm feeling good thank you <laughs> I'm feeling really good I'm excited to be here in Los Angeles it's been a while there's some
2: anxiety in your voice is there mm-hmm there's
3: always anxiety in my voice it's, is that um, true a certain amount yeah i'm getting better the older i get but i think um there's always been a sense of anxiety and worry that fuels me which um
2: yeah well i think we'll get into that
3: (laughs) should we've gone straight in i think we'll
2: we'll try to figure that out perfect by the end of this conversation that would be wonderful (laughs) you have this new film out called the good nurse in it you play real life serial killer charlie colin who used intravenous tubes to poison patients with lethal drugs. He did this, I think, over 16 years in nine hospitals across New Jersey and Pennsylvania. Now, I'm curious because you have this quote where you say, when I'm reading a script, I react to what is presented in front of me. But I do like the idea that a lot of the characters I play have empathy as something inherent to them. So on the surface, It's hard to imagine empathy as something inherent to a serial killer. So what was your entry point into this man?
3: Perhaps the most curious thing about reading the script was that empathy felt at the forefront of who he was. On the one hand, he was the nurse that... When nurses were leaving the hospital at the end of the day, they wanted him to be the nurse that took over. The changeover in which you pass over the notes could take up to an hour. When Charlie was there, it would take 15 minutes. He was efficient. He was kind. He was good. And it was those qualities that meant that Amy Loughran, Jessica Chastain's character, became very close to him. And Amy was suffering from illness at the time, and she relied on Charlie. And it was true that empathy. When I was making the movie, we were lucky enough to spend time with Amy. And she said, the most important thing is that kindness. It was real. It was true. It just happened that there was a disassociative personality that then weaponized that empathy. So that was what I found kind of intriguing was on the surface, because I didn't know about the story when I read the script. I saw this quite kind Gentleman. And then when the horrific things that he was doing unveiled themselves, I found it particularly dumbfounding that that quality of empathy was then being used in a poisonous
0: way.
2: That dynamic between Amy and Charlie, I think, is really best described in the book in which the film is adapted from. There's a passage that reads Like many nurses, Amy saw herself as a hero defending humanity's most fragile an advocate and facilitator for the voiceless and immobile. With his question mark posture, soft gray hair and ratty old man cardigans, the new nurse struck Amy as another sensitive soul in need of defending, a sad Mr. Rogers type, both trippy and depressed. His nurse whites had the dingy air of bachelor washing and behind his greasy drugstore glasses, his eyes held a darkness and desperation. That Amy recognized as masked anger. It took only a couple overnights together before Amy realized that Charlie Cullen was also one of the funniest people she had ever met." That question mark posture, I was wondering what that description did for you. Well, it's so
3: interesting hearing you read that because it was part of the appeal of this character and this film was, which was just a load of conflicting things. The question mark was a big thing. When I'm approaching characters, particularly real people, I often look to other people's interpretations. You know that when you're playing a real person that you're never going to get it right. It's not documentary. And so more and more, I've found whether it's looking at paintings, writing other people's interpretations of character is an, is an insight. And Charlie Graber, who wrote that book, was brilliant and spent a lot of time with Charles Cullen And got a sense. So the idea of that question mark was both physical, because he had an extraordinary and specific posture, but it was also the enigma of him. It was the blankness. It was the sort of void, I suppose, that was filled with trauma. It became really my step into finding who he was.
2: But doesn't that question mark extend beyond his posture? In that the film really makes no attempt to explain away his actions. And any questions we may have around the why or the how of his behavior don't exactly get answered by the end of the movie.
3: When I read the script, that was one of the interesting things. I thought, is it possible to make a film in which you don't confront that? But through discussion with Tobias, it became clear that the human need or an audience's need to know why someone would do something as horrendous as this is about making ourselves feel safe once we can kind of label it as going, oh, well, he did it because of this, it makes us go, okay, so that person's not a human being, he's a monster and we're human beings, so we're sort of okay. Whereas actually it wasn't as easily definable as that. And actually the not knowing, the not answering is the truth. What's extraordinary about Charles Graves' book is our film is the sort of last third of the book. And the other two thirds are really intimate insight into Charlie's upbringing. And this man... Had dumbfounding trauma as a kid. He was the youngest of a large family. His dad died in his first year. He was abused by his siblings' partners and first tried to kill one of them, age seven, I think with lighter fluid, and then tried to kill himself after that. So, your first suicide attempt, age seven. And then when he was 15, his mother died, who he was incredibly close to. He was the first to the hospital. She died in a car crash, and when he arrived, her body had been lost. And when it was found, it was it. Was, if she wasn't clean. She was. They had sort of just sort of left her. He then went and later in his life joined the navy. This man passed all the psychiatric tests to work on submarines Mm -hmm. and was found down in the submarines with his fingers over the Poseidon missiles. Some people say very oddly, although it's hearsay, dressed as a nurse. This is before he'd ever had any nurse training. And then finally, he was thrown out of the Navy and chose to go back to that same hospital that his mother died at to train as a nurse. So there was this incredibly intense hatred of this hospital that his mother had been and the systems that allowed his mother to be treated so poorly. But also, when he then started training as a nurse, he was top of his class. He was brilliant. He was like the president of the Students' Union. He very quickly started working in intense burns units. And he then said, you know, it was because of the horror of seeing these people who were very, very ill. That he, It was the, the sense of mercy killing to begin with. But very quickly, that doesn't hold up because later in his career, he wasn't injecting people and killing them immediately. He was just injecting these saline bags that were being sent off into the wards as bombs almost. And so it became something else. But what I found extraordinary about this script and this story was that it was allowed to happen. That this man who was so challenged mentally and had done such extreme things was ever allowed
2: near mm.
3: vulnerable people.
2: As you're describing all of that, I can't help but shake you as a performer, a husband, a father, holding all of this material consumed by this man's horrible, horrendous actions. And I guess I just wonder, how the hell do you carry the weight of that on a day-to-day in making a movie?
3: I think because there are things that sing out to you in the research, and you take all of the anything you can get your hands on, and that's the stuff I love. That's like the bit that I enjoy most about the process. But there are a few sort of primary colors that sing out from specific moments. One was the question mark, the other was from Amy Lockran herself, who just described his humor and his kindness and the truth of their friendship, the love in their friendship. And that when she met the murderer, she only met him twice. One was at a scene when, at the moment, sorry, a moment when she was trying to get him to reveal. And the other was a moment in an interrogation with the police and that was a different human being. And so what it did for me as a performer was go, okay, you can try and take with you all the trauma, but actually what's most important is what you hide and hiding it really, really well is the key. So, so the insight into the first two thirds of the film was actually about friendship, was about chemistry and making that real love between two people and making that empathy real, and then leaving it to Tobias Lindholm, our director, to find the other colors on the sides of that, if and when he wanted to reveal this other
2: side of him. Something that stuck out to me in the research, since we're talking about research, is that once you've done the preparation, the psychological mapping, I wanna unpack the actual physical conditions of the set, which you described as extremely dark, and for someone like me, who's colorblind and has shoddy peripheral vision, was riveting. What exactly did that look like on set? It was really shocking, actually. It was my, my
3: first day. And there's, it's always so weird on your first day of filming and you're terrified because you've created this character in a vacuum. And even though you've rehearsed perhaps from a month with Tobias, you've not really spoken the lines much. You've talked through the script and about nursing and about the themes and and then suddenly you have to jump in at a scene and commit to celluloid. Especially with this accent. Exactly. Especially with his accent and his specific physicality. And I arrived on set and they had built this hospital corridor because we couldn't shoot in hospitals because it was during COVID. And it was pitch black. I could barely see a thing. And I knew that we were shooting a film about night nurses, but I hadn't realized it would be quite this dark. I said to Tobias, the director, I was like, wow, this is seriously dark. And then I kind of looked on the monitor and saw that the way it was being read through the camera was actually much brighter than it looked. So I walked into the darkness, which gets you into this kind of headspace of invisibility and Mm. anonymity, which are the key aspects to who Charlie is. And one of the things that is odd about filmmaking. And I, having started in theatre, it's something that I've always sort of tried to sort of come to terms with, is that you are have to be at your most relaxed and most natural. And yet there are a group of maybe 40 people about five inches away from you and machinery, and that's scrutinizing. But in the darkness, you couldn't see them. It meant that you were so much less self-conscious and that Jess and I could just see each other. It felt so intimate that it gave the film an intimacy that I think it's really unique to it, actually. And when you see a film, it's not nearly that dark. They kind of open the apertures. And I think it was all about getting a grainy effect or, you know, Jodie, or cinematographer's ideas. But I found it as a,
2: a side effect of that creative choice, found it really helpful. You mentioned starting out on stage. I believe your first role is at the age of 12, playing the very pivotal <laughs> role of workhouse boy number 46. You're right. In Sam Mendes' West End production of Oliver. I'm wondering, since you did so much research for this new part, did you bring that kind of rigor? <laughs> into Workhouse Boy number forty-six, I bought passion and I bought
3: commitment, <laughs> but I don't think I bought. I don't think I bought that rigor. I definitely didn't read the book. Um, no, that was twelve-year-old you. Twelve-year-old me, you very disappointed. Showing it wasn't showing up. I wasn't bringing my A-game. I got cast in this production that was in London by this young director called Sam Menders. And I used to get to leave my school and I got to stand up in the middle of like a maths class and just go and get on the subway and go to the London Palladium, which is one of our most beautiful old theatres. And I just remember, it sort of reminds me, you know, walking in the stage door there and passing these bustling Victorian costumes. And it felt like something out of Birdman or something, you know, like you, the, the romance of theatre was instantly hypnotic to me that's where the the drug hit me
2: i love this image of you as a 11 12 year old walking into this theater falling in love with a craft that is so much larger than yourself and at the same time that that's happening your father says to you only one in 100 actors make it have you thought about producing <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's like you're you're falling in love and your dad's like yeah. Maybe slow down. Maybe
3: slow down. But to my I mean, the amazing thing about my parents is they they don't come from this world at all. My dad worked in finance. Your mother did relocation. Exactly. But they were passionate supporters. And like as a parent now myself, like you just want your kids to be happy and any show of passion or of interest is a wonderful thing to my parents credit it was something they really knew nothing about and they really supported it you know most of my brothers are like extraordinary sportsmen and like re- and and that's more my kind of mum and dad's i suppose natural world but from a really young age when i showed an interest my, my dad found a little like drama workshop to go to at the weekends and i joined this place called the Jackie Palmer Children's School, which is where James Corden was at, randomly at the time doing street dance, and I was sort of singing songs from, you know, cats. But-, but, but there, actually, And
2: we were actually, um, if you want to do that now- you're, Absolutely. You're yeah. more than welcome That's to. That's very
3: kind of you. I'm, I I I'm actually, not going to put I, you through uh, the, <laughs> the, our the- listeners vein. actually specifically requested it. No. I'm, when you know I, talk shows are a big thing like in promoting films and i going back to what we started i think a lot of my anxi- anxiety <laughs> about doing press generally stems from having to do talk shows and i made the error of going on james corden's one and mm. and quite often when you do these talk shows they dig up stuff from your past but generally they've run it past you to check that you don't but of course james given that we had both been at this same drama school as kids managed to go deeper in his research than anyone. He knew where to look. He knew where the skeletons were buried. And he played a good three minute version of my sort of 11 year old self singing memory from cats. And so it was so horrifically painful to watch that yes. I will not be putting you or your listeners or myself. Well, you know
2: what? We actually got that clip from James. No. <laughs> uh, we're going to roll it here. It's <laughs> not true. It's <laughs> I mean, not true. I love you. Thank you for not making me hear that. You know. We just started this talk, but the love is mutual. (laughs) I want to go to the moment where you became that improbable statistic that your dad was talking about, the one in a hundred actors that make it. You're 20 years old, studying history of art at Trinity College in Cambridge, when you hear about a production of Shakespeare's Twelfth Night being mounted at the Globe Theatre in London. What happens next?
3: I got this call saying it's the 400th anniversary of Twelfth Night. It was commissioned by this lawyers inn in London called the Middle Temple Hall. And they've commissioned the newly mounted Globe Theatre Company, which was headed by an actor called Mark Rylands. He's hall. pretty good. He's pretty nifty. I didn't know any of his work Did You say nifty? Yeah, he's nifty. A, yeah, he's a talented man. God, I wish I could say nifty. <laughs> you can. I know I can.
2: Yeah, you can. I mean,
3: now without getting yeah. made fun of. <laughs> he, I basically got called to this audition and... I had gone to Eton, an all-boys school, and I was quite used to playing women. It was an all-male production they were trying to do, which is what had happened during Shakespeare's time. And Mark was playing Olivia. Uh, I was auditioning to play Viola. And I didn't know Mark. I didn't know. I was so green that I didn't find the situation intimidating. I I was also at university, and I didn't think I'd firstly get the part, secondly, be able to do it if I did get it. A couple of weeks later, I didn't hear anything back and and I was in a pub in Notting Hill in London with a friend and I got a call from this casting director on my kind of flip phone saying, Eddie, are you in London? I said, Yup. She said, can you come to the Globe? And I came and within minutes I was sort of put in this rehearsal dress and I was there with Mark just reading some scenes and then Mark then took the script out of my hand and I had to sort of start basically improvising shakespeare improvising iambic pentameter which if you would mention that to me now i mean is, is i think it's actually probably every actor's worst nightmare but i was young i was green i was drunk and it was fine and somehow i got this part and it i then had to negotiate with university whether i was allowed to do it and they said look you can take a term off but you have to send all your essays back every week and there's an amazing place in London called the Courtauld Institute beautiful um, university specializing in art history. And, and it's right next to the Middle Temple Hall where we were doing Twelfth Night. And so I would have these amazing days of going to the court hall to sort of write my essays. And then in the evenings, playing Viola opposite Mark, as you say, one of the great actors living. And I see it as my education because at the Globe, they had verse coaches, they had voice coaches. And
2: that was kind of my drama school, really. When you're 20 years old, it's an especially impressionable age. And I'm curious, what did you learn from Mark Rylance at that time?
3: Play. That's the thing that Mark does. That idea of accessing your inner child and constantly finding playful ways of pushing you outside of your Comfort zone was really important, along with technical things. As I said, there were sort of verse coaches and voice coach. I remember doing this amazing exercise with Mark when we were doing a scene between Viola and Olivia. And again, I had, really hadn't done much Shakespeare. So this idea that in iambic pentameter, the last sort of beat of the line is is often where the most important word, da dum da dum da dum da dum da dum, you know, is the. They did this wonderful thing of putting all these chairs around the room, and we would play the scene, and on the last beat of the pentameter, we would step up onto one of the chairs. So it became like this dance, and it was a way for them, uh, Mark definitely didn't need to do this, but of affirming to me where, or recognising what that word was in the scene. I did Richard II at the Donmar many years later, and, and it and became a sort of technique that I used. So there were lots of specific minutiae of things, but the thing that I took away mostly was play.
2: We'll be right back after a quick break.
0: Hello, hello. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisions History. In my book, David and Goliath, I tried to figure out how some people find the strength to take on the established way of thinking— and turn it upside down. What does it take to be a disruptor? And I concluded that a disruptor is someone with a rare combination of three traits. First, you have to be open. You have to be willing to see and do things in new ways. Secondly, you have to be conscientious, to follow through and make things happen. Those two are obvious. But the third one is the crucial one. You have to be willing to do what you think is right, even when everyone around you thinks you're an idiot. There isn't a brilliant innovator in history who wasn't surrounded by naysayers. Most of us can't take that kind of criticism and we fold, but the disruptor doesn't. They soldier on. I've been looking at disruptors and their success stories a lot lately, partly because I'm working on a follow-up to the tipping point and market disruption plays a key role in how ideas take off, but also because I'm going to be the keynote speaker at this year's Unconventional Awards from T-Mobile for Business. It's an event where customers are recognized for kicking convention to the curb to elevate their company, while also doing meaningful things for their community and even the world. In fact, I'll be presenting the first ever Tipping Point designation, a new special distinction honoring one entrant that sparked transformative change for their organization. If this event sounds like your thing... I encourage you to find out more or even enter the Unconventional Awards to be recognized for your disruptive thinking. Win a donation to a charity of your choice, and much more. You can enter before July 31st at Tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. I'll save you a seat.
1: Small business owners, this one's for you. JPMorgan Chase Bank, N.A. Member, FDIC. Copyright 2024. JPMorgan Chase & Co.
0: Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. This is your chance to reignite some old musical passions or pick up an instrument for the first time. Connect with more than 100 of the world's best teachers and musicians. You'll get seven days totally free to try it out, and then it's just... $30 a month, less than a single private lesson. I mean, why do we do Broken Record? Not just because we love hearing from great musicians. We do it because we think that there is something beautiful about the appreciation of music. Don't you think we need more of that in our lives these days? That's the mission of Musora, to inspire, educate, and connect musicians. Enjoy unlimited personal support, weekly live streams, student lesson plans, it's like having a personal music teacher, only much, much better. Just go to Mizora.com. musora.com, M U S O R A.com to start a new musical journey
1: today.
2: From that performance at the Globe, you secure an agent then land a key role opposite of Jonathan Price and Edward Albee's The Goat, eventually finding yourself out here in Los Angeles alongside Andrew Garfield and and Jamie Dornan. You would sleep on floors while going to these auditions. And it's those auditions I wanted to talk to you about. Can you remember what kind of performer you were at that time going into those rooms? I'd come from theater
3: and... I didn't know anything about film. My first film was with Tony Collette, and we were shooting it in Australia. And the director said, look, you're not allowed to watch playback. And I was like, I totally get it. And I did this scene with Tony, and we were doing a few hours in, and she was like, Eddie, do you want to go and watch the playback? And I was like, no, 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 I'm not allowed. And I was told him, and she goes, come and watch the playback. And I'm like, no, I'm really, the director said I'm not. And thank God she did, because I went and watched, and it was as if I was performing this thing to the back of the stalls. I just had no sense of the intimacy of the camera. And so the truth was that time in LA was really, it was sort of very much resonated when I saw La La Land you have to go in with a take, you have to try and do something that defines you or makes it sort of memorable. But you would sort of audition for everything and anything. And I remember driving around this city in a little rental car that you'd got when you arrive at LAX, you have to take sort of four different buses to find this place. And you'd be in this little car and you'd be giving your ID and going over to these gigantic studios. And the other seat in the car would be covered with pages of different scripts and all your 15 different slightly shoddy American accents that you were jumping between loose debris, debris, food. debris of failure, <laughs> exactly, exactly <laughs> that, loose debris of failure. And then occasionally one of your mates would get something and you'd be really happy. For that. You'd be really happy. No, But it was, it was interesting because it was a really good learning thing. How do you mean? Well, because we were and are a troop of buddies But at the same time, you're also competitive. And when you don't get something, you're furious. But then the fact that a mate of yours got it and someone you admired, it was like, oh, I didn't get it, fuck. But at least someone I kind of love got it. And the lucky thing with that group of people is we've all had luck. And now to be able to be in a position where we've all luckily kept working and to be able to look back at that time and also talk to each other about how to navigate the oddness of the industry is,
2: is, it feels special. One role... You did end up landing is in the other Bolin girl. Yeah. That's an interesting choice. <laughs> where are you going with this? <laughs> have I led you astray so far? No, you haven't. <laughs> I have some faith in me. Oh, faith. I thought we were going well. Now uh, <laughs> Not I, no... you seem skeptical. <laughs> I'll tell you where I'm going. On set, hmm. there's one day when Scarlett Johansson comes up to you. Yeah. And starts talking to you about the history of film. Yeah. And I was wondering if you remember that day.
3: There are various things I remember from The Other Boleyn Girl. The first one was, I'd read the book, and I was playing this guy called William Stafford, who ended up being Mary Berlin's husband. And in the book, he's described as strapping, kind of six foot three, dark, tall, and handsome. No, you're a good actor. I was cast in this book. And I remember going, you know, don't talk yourself out of a part, mate. Don't talk yourself out. And I arrived on set and we did a pre-shoot and I was introduced to Scarlett, who I'd never met before. There were these three children. We were shooting the last scene of the film. And the director, Justin, said, right, Eddie, you and Scarlett, you just wander through this field. And, you know, just at any moment, you know, you just sort of just take Scarlett and you kiss her and your children playing. I was like, okay, this was all like completely overwhelming a Prospect. Didn't quite know how to behave hadn't sort of really done many on-screen sort of kisses, didn't know if it was sort of appropriate just to sort of... Anyway, whole thing was going of We We were sitting just before the first take, and I said to Scott, I was like, it's lovely to meet you. I don't really know why I'm cast in this film. Because in the book, he's tall, dark and handsome. Scott was like, Eddie, do you know what? Honestly, you're not quite how I imagine it too, but we're <laughs> going to make this work, literally. And she was, she's a good pal, and was like incredibly generous. But I, it was an odd one from the word go, that movie. There was a moment on set, though, when we were talking, and she would often go, Ed, have you, you know, that bit in The Big Lebowski when, and I would sort of nod, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Or there would be, you know, the bit, you know, the, the bit in Scarface where the, and then, as men typically do. Yeah. And pretend to, and I, at some point, I basically had to admit that I did not, I actually hadn't watched any of these movies. And she was, firstly, furious at me for, for, for lying. And secondly, was like, Ed, come on, this is your job. Like I'd come from a family again that we'd watched films, but we weren't film literate. And the idea of watching films to educate yourself on your profession just, I felt like it would be indulgent in the home that I was living in in London, when everyone was out going to proper jobs to come back and be like, what did you do today? Oh, I watched three DVDs. Mm -hmm. But she was right. Like she gave, she was saying, you've got to educate yourself and learn from other actors. And that started um, really my kind of love of
2: film, I suppose. At that age, was there some part of you that just hadn't quite accepted that this could be a job? You're right. Yeah.
3: I think that's exactly what it was. I think that it had always been a dream as a kid. Theater had been the thing. I didn't know about film. I was now just trying to make a living. And it was very much a time when you auditioned for stuff. And if you got the part, then you did it. But I think there came a point where I had to sort of take ownership of it. Because I'd got this agent when I'd done Twelfth Night. I'd always gone, okay, now I've got the opportunity to try and do it. I'll see how it goes. But with that one in a hundred statistics still ringing truly in my ear. And I think part of what Scarlett said at that time was, you need to take it seriously. Mm-hmm. What was about actually taking ownership of the fact that this was my life choice. When do you think you did accept it? Well, Theory of Everything was the first time that I felt like I sort of pushed myself to play something that was beyond my expectation of what I
2: was able to do. I think people may be listening to this and thinking, but wait a minute. You have My Week with Marilyn, Les Mis, theater productions, all before Theory of Everything. And the idea that you hadn't accepted it as a kind of job, I'm sure some people are thinking, how is that possible?
3: Mm. I mean, it's interesting saying accepting it as a job. Like, I still think it as a career. It's my passion it's it's in my blood it's what i love but as far as going oh i can play beyond what i look like mm. i suppose maybe it was actually about accepting that i'm perhaps more of a character actor that was interesting because for, for i'm a bit of an odd looking person and for a while i was sort of being put in and so accepting that there was a character actor side of me was important you have this quote where you said "I'm mean, a lot of <laughs> quotes sam i'm seeing, like, hearing each time you say it, i'm like what did I say? Did I mean it? I hope I meant it. I
2: think you just don't like hearing your own words well, back. I'm, you? I'm just hoping that I wasn't lying when I said it anyway. Well, let's-, let's You said, I'm extremely good looking. Oh, this is where it starts. <laughs> this is not true. It's not <laughs> I
3: going to say, I know that's not true.
2: Yeah. Um, I'm a pessimist. Oh shit. I couldn't think of it. Oh God. Joke. Okay. <laughs> I'm a pessimist in life or maybe a self protectionist. At each point of my career, I think it will never happen. It will never happen. I've been scarred by getting my hopes up for things as an actor. And I I guess I'm wondering in that time before Theory of Everything, Hmm. did that pessimism sometimes get in the way?
3: I mean, I think what I've done or what I've realized is that it's not so much pessimism. It's just not being active. I'll never be the person when I'm asked, what part do you want to play? Like, what are your dreams? I just don't have any. In the sense that I don't know what I'm capable of and what I love. And of and and I think Theory of Everything was the start of that, is when other people go, you can do this. I see you in this. It happened with the goodness. You know, Tobias Lindholm was like, I see you as this person. It. I don't think it was necessarily a, a script that I would have
2: gone, oh, I'm, I can play Charlie Cullen. So you're saying, a part of you need someone else's permission before you can find it in yourself.
3: Yeah, and I find it interesting. It's not reading a book that I'll envision myself playing something or being that person. It's about someone seeing something in you and seeing the qualities of how different I could be in other things that are often that you see from the outside before I can start excavating them from the inside.
2: Once you are emboldened by Theory of Everything, the movie comes out in 2014, you win an Oscar in 2015. After that, you're being offered scripts without auditioning and you have this power to get some projects greenlit. But what comes with that, you've said, is that sometimes directors no longer direct you. Mm. They expect you to just be yourself, but you can't grow as an actor like that. How did you reconcile this kind of contradiction uh, where you're being celebrated on the highest stage for this job And yet, this job suddenly has a a sort of like new ceiling to it. I
3: can't express how weird it is. Like, I came to this city, as I was saying before, I went to thousands of auditions, didn't get them, occasionally got close, but really, and then suddenly, overnight, you don't see this city through that lens anymore. Actually, you're staying in hotels, you're going to premieres, it's about coming here to do press for things. And I still find that difficult to reconcile with Los Angeles. You're treated completely differently. And all that is, is one notch that has, it's like a light switch that's changed. The problem, as as you were saying, that can come with that is that even those people who are auditioning you, directors and things, who saw your failings and your flaws because they didn't cast you and stuff, or they didn't, you know, either there's a disingenuous quality that you've become a better actor, but of course you haven't become a better actor overnight. It's just you something happened where the alchemy of the part, the film, the writing, the extraordinary magic that happens in filmmaking works, and you're suddenly shifted a few rungs up that ladder. That's when you understand that there's something disingenuous in the system of it, and you can't believe that. You know that you haven't become a better actor overnight. You've just been given an extraordinary opportunity and it and it worked. I think what's happened now is that it took me a couple of years just to go, okay, well, I need to shake myself up. What does shaking things up look like? Well, this year it was re-inspired and invigorated by my experience on The Good Nurse and working with Jessica and working with Tobias. I was about to then do this production of Cabaret in London that I had sort of been planning on doing for six years and trying to help produce. and
2: That you first did when you were 17. Yes, exactly.
3: But I mean... All I knew was that it had been ten years since I'd done theatre. I was going from playing quite a few introverts to playing a character who is, I think, placeless, but certainly extrovert is one of his qualities. And I just wanted to go into this rehearsal room feeling free and ready to push myself, kind of, to th- and make a fool of myself in rehearsal in order to try things and not feel caged in by that. So. I decided to go to a school in Paris called Le Coq, which is this amazing physical theatre school. They do these summer courses, and one of them was on the Theatre of the Absurd. It was myself and about 20 other students aged between 18 and, and 60 from all over the world who had come here to work with these two Sort of Diane, French Diane of the Lecoq Pedagogy, and they—I can never say that. I, I don't really know what Pedagogy means, but I, I love I, it. Is no it a idea. satisfying word? I still don't know. Um, I mean, <laughs> it's good when you say it. <laughs> and it was brilliant because day one you walk in and you're given these extraordinary masks, which get rid of your any sort of vanities or sense of self, and you're having to try and interpret the mask rather than a character on the page. It wasn't about text. It wasn't about Beckett, or you know, it was it was about situations that were absurd that these teachers would suggest. For example, one I remember was about passport offices and the absurdity in those of of kind of bureaucratic infrastructure. And when you go to one place and they're like, "Okay, sorry, can you have this piece of paper? Do you have this piece of paper?" And you're like, "No." Well, they're like, "We well, have to go and join that queue to get to." The, and then you get to the front of that queue and they're like, "Oh, so, but have you got that stamp?" No. Like, well, you have to go back to the queue that came. It was Kafkaesque. Exactly. It was finding that mixture between. Humor coming from truth, but also that's uh, was all taught in French, which I speak a little bit of, but not. Great. And all of these things, like I stood up to do the first improvisation with an, another wonderful actress, I think from Switzerland, and within you know a minute and a half, the two teachers were like, "Not marche no, 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 no." There was no kind of kid glove. They were going, "No, this doesn't work, and this is why it doesn't work, and here's what you're doing." And it was. I think there's a part of me that basically always wanted to go to drop school. <laughs> and, but what this week was, or two weeks, was learning from what you saw and then going and trying again. And it meant that when I arrived into the room with this extraordinary cast that Rebecca Frecknell had accrued for cabaret, I just wasn't afraid to try
2: ridiculous things. It sounds like these teachers were doing everything the industry wouldn't in the aftermath of your success.
3: Yeah, but that makes it sound like it's the industry's fault, whereas like, I'm sure that braver actors would not feel that limitation. So I don't want to blame it on the industry. It was probably more my own. Probably if I'd gone and asked and said, look, will you push me harder? I'm sure they would have been up for it. Like, But it is also interesting, that idea of film directors and actors, and, and some film directors come from a camera background. They come from sort of commercials and things, and actors are sort of seen as other. One of the things I find really interesting about film directors is they don't often get to watch other directors direct. Whereas actors get to see, we get to learn from you know, early doors. I was lucky enough to work with like Kate Blanchett and Julianne Moore, amazing actors. By osmosis, you just try and watch them and like how, not only how they're performing, but also how they're living. And, and
2: whereas I feel like directors don't get that so much, you know, they're really in their own world. Perhaps it's that joy in play you saw in Mark Rylance as a young actor, all those years ago. Mm. I think you're right. I definitely think that
3: this film was pretty inspiring to make because the filmmaker and also Jessica Chastain, the three of us, and with Christie our writer also, we felt like we were all telling the same story and that we were confident in each other to push ourselves. And from that came a regalvanized thing going into doing cabaret of being like, I just want to push myself and not compromise
2: and keep pushing. What does not compromising look like at age 40? Uh, Not
3: compromising means being quite picky. (laughs) Uh, Perhaps being more rigorous and tentative in those meetings with directors and in scripts, and also talking through process. Like to be a director on this was like, so how do you like to work? And I said, look, my dream as an actor is to be told, we've got it, now go play. So given the confidence that that I've delivered what the director needs, and then that extra take or two in which to push yourself into something that may be completely wrong, but might just crack open something that's unexpected. Mm. That's when I feel at my most um, free. You have this, sorry, but the quotes, but no, this is a good quote. <laughs> it's so weird to hear yourself like that, because it always, when someone quotes you, a quote sounds so official.
2: <laughs> I'm not really sure anything sounds that official coming from me. I think it does. Okay. I think it does. Th- you know, I, th- I think it's okay. I have long hair still, so. <laughs> <laughs> this I can vouch for. that's it (laughs) this whole hour exactly he has long hair I can verify (laughs) he does have long hair on the subject of freedom you have this quote you say I draw and play the piano badly. <laughs> Always the optimist. <laughs> Always the optimist. Hey, we tried the pessimism thing over yeah. <laughs> here. You corrected that. Um <laughs> yeah. straight to a therapist, obviously. <laughs> right. It's then, quite like therapy. This. Yeah, I'm no, like, oh fact, my God, I really have such a dire outlook on the world. I think I need to go yeah, sort of... Yeah. yeah, no, no, don't yeah. worry. It's a okay. room right over here. So perfect. But when I'm doing those things, I'm concentrating so hard that there's no room to worry. Yeah. I find that on stage too. In film, the takes start and stop and the anxiety kicks back in. People say, how can you do a play for six months? The same thing every night. But you never get close to getting it right. And every night, you get to go back and try again. And in those moments, I do not worry. Yeah, I stand by
3: that. But what I would say is that there's an odd thing about filmmaking that you create this character in a void and everyone's like, yeah, we've got hundreds of takes. It's just not true. You just don't. And so you have this dual thing that you hold as an actor, which is on the one hand trying to refine through takes what your instinct is of a character, whilst at the same point wanting to just totally be free and find something anew and afresh. And I think what was interesting about working with Tobias is he he knows how to combine both of those things. Mm. I'm thinking as my last question with you, because we have to go. Really? I'm, enjo- I'm heading towards optimism. <laughs> I'm so <laughs> close, I'm so close. I'm also wearing knitwear, I'm kind of sweaty. Sorry. I wasn't going to mention it. I know. It's, I don't want anyone to come into the room. You know that thing when you're in a room and you can't tell whether it's got smelly, and then when other yeah. people
2: come in, they go, whoa! And, and I wasn't going to tell you. Okay. <laughs> I was going to keep that between us. Thank you. Now everyone listening it's So generous. A, I, I, you know, I try to be. But as we do work towards optimism. Yes. You uh, recently received a Lifetime Achievement Award at the Zurich Film Festival. And I have to say, now that you're an old man, accepting this lifetime achievement, how does that I mean, now that the career's over?
3: Yeah, I guess it's all done. done. I mean, I'm not sure it was a lifetime <laughs> achievement. Well, I didn't quite know what that was. Um, but it was. Um, do you know the interesting thing was? I never watch work back. I will always watch films in the process of editing, and I'll watch them while you can still do something about it. I will be as engaged as possible, and then I don't see them. But what was interesting about the Zurich was. They showed clips from different things. <laughs> and I and I found it sort of weirdly emotional. I've but but you're taken back to these moments. You remember where you were at the time, your like what, what how your life was. And it's the first time I've seen that, going, Oh God, it's an odd career because you you have these photographs of memories of experiences. What made you emotional? That. So going, oh, that that point when I, you know, when I was doing Savage Grace, or when I was doing sort of between Theory of Everything and The Danish Girl, I sort of got married, and my kid was born. And it's an amazing thing, like a document to have this kind of tapestry of life experience. But
2: yeah, and lifetime, <laughs> lifetime. I don't know about that. Yeah, Phil. I'm my last question, though, in in earnest. In earnest. <laughs> I, I wasn't going to end on me teasing you about a lifetime achievement award. <laughs> I'm not that cruel. Cool. Okay. I'm Is that great? What do you say? I'm going grey. I'm going gray. I wouldn't know it. And a
3: few, few flecks. Would around. you know
2: it? I mean, aren't you colorblind? I now? am colorblind. So, this is
3: true. So that's fine. As far as I'm concerned. Fine. Colorblind and a little bit blind. So I look definitely in my twenties.
2: I think the internet um, Why am made, I not I, in
3: the new Twilight movie? I, is yes, there a new Twilight movie? Um, no, th- Hunger th- think, Games
2: movie. I don't think you want that. Okay. Ready? I don't think so. I mean, but that's my last question. <laughs> <laughs> At 40. Yeah. You have two kids. Yep. You're married. Yeah. We've talked about how this movie has sort of reawoken that part in you that wants to do this all over again. Yeah. That wants to continue making this your career. And I guess I'm wondering, beyond Hunger Games and Twilight, (laughs) what do you want for yourself? And what really matters?
3: Family really matters. And the odd nomadic circus-like life of being an actor is really coming sort of full circle when it has ramifications on your kids and your family. And those choices of things to do need to be so, given I'm lucky enough to be in a a position to understand now what my process is, which is I need a long runway, like I I need time to prep and I need to be able to push myself outside the comfort zone. I really look to work with people who want to do that with me. So I suppose it's actually, I'm really focusing on looking for interesting filmmakers who you have a sort of symbiosis with. It's so many things. It's like I had routine as a kid and that's what I know. And that's sort of, I suppose, what I want or will for my kids because it's what I know. And yet at the same point, there's this conflict because my life, my work life demands this much more nomadic thing. And there's an interesting conflict there. And and it's one that my wife and I and my kids, we try and sort of negotiate with each job. But but there's been great I feel so lucky. I would get travelling to New York to make this film and seeing the kids. They definitely thought I was playing the good nurse. And then they, 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 <laughs> they, they saw a, they saw a glimpse of a trailer and um, which I think w- was deeply traumatizing. And they were like, What's the dad? You're the bad nurse. And I was like, Yeah And they were like
2: not At some point kids have to learn that their parents aren't always the heroes. <laughs> no, I think they'd rather I stick to being a wizard. Um <laughs> You know, I wish that for you. We started this conversation talking about uh, the anxiety you felt. I did. How did we start there? We started our therapy session
3: in anxiety and we left in optimism. I think that's successful. So do I.
2: Eddie Redmayne, I wish you luck. I wish you love. Thank you. Thank you.
3: We did it. Thank you. Is that alright? So lovely. Yeah. I am sweating.
2: That's our show. Special thanks to Carrie Gordon and Emma Eels at LEAD, the team at Netflix, and of course, Eddie Redmayne. His new film, The Good Nurse, is now playing in theaters across the country. You'll also be able to stream the film on Netflix October 26th. To learn more about Eddie and his work, visit our show notes at talkeasypod.com. If you enjoyed today's conversation, I imagine you would enjoy our talks with actors like Ethan Hawke, Kate Blanchett, Pedro Pascal, Amanda Seyfried, Tessa Thompson, and Matthew McConaughey. To hear those and more Pushkin Podcasts, listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, at TalkEasyPod. If you want to support our show by purchasing one of our mugs, they come in cream or navy. You can do so at talkeasypod.com shop. As always, Talk Easy is produced by Caroline Reebok. Our executive producer is Janik Sabravo. Our associate producer is Caitlin Dryden. Today's talk was edited by Clarice Guevara and mixed by Andrew Vastola. It was engineered by Clay Hillenberg at iHeart Studios in Los Angeles, California. Our assistant editor is Lindsay Ellis. Music by Dylan Peck, illustrations by Krisha Shenoy, photographs by Jenna Jones, video and graphics by Ian Chang, Derek Gaberzak, Ian Jones, Ethan Seneca, and Layla Register. Special thanks to Patrice Lee, Kaylin Ung, and Paulina Suarez. I'd also like to thank the team at Pushkin Industries. Justin Richmond, Julia Barton, John Schnars, Carrie Brody, David Glover, Heather Fain, Mia LaBelle, Eric Sandler. Nicole Morano, Maggie Taylor, Morgan Ratner, Jordan McMillan, Isabella Navarrez, Maya Koenig, Carly Migliori, Jason Gambrell, Malcolm Gladwell, and Jacob Weisberg. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. I'll see you back here on Wednesday for a special midweek episode with Nick Kroll. Until then, stay safe, and so long.
0: Enter now at tmobile.com/unconventionalawards. See you there.
1: Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks,